This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. The Whigs are back, together live in the studio for the first time in 2021. They kick off the year with three legal controversies. First up, a look at the phenomenon of deplatforming, where social media companies restrict people's access to their platforms on account of the things said in the expression of views and beliefs. Secondly, the Whigs analyse a new New South Wales proposal to criminalise coercive control, extending the criminal law to domestic violence abuse, which does not involve physical violence or threats. Lastly, the Whigs examine a controversial new decision of the International Criminal Court, in which the court's pre-trial chamber has ruled it has jurisdiction over alleged offences in the occupied Palestinian territories. And of course, stick around for fun things at the end of the episode, okay? Without further ado, let's go. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Wigs. We're back for 2021 as a group. No more of these one-on-ones, Manny, all right? We're not going to let you indulge in your little side projects anymore. It was good. I quite enjoyed it. It was actually actually a really good episode. Well done. Um, uh, I'm your host, Jim Minns. Uh, B average law student, I would I would say, joined by the greatest legal minds in Australia, is reserve team, Manuel Kirkusharian, bless Felicity Graham. I'm not a cat. I'm a barrister. Hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm alive. <laughs> and Mr. Stephen Lawrence, Deputy Mayor of Dubbo. Hey Jim, good to be here. Congrats! It's great to have you here. Congratulations on being here. Right, it's Welcome good to be to here. It's always a trip for me. So it's right. Welcome to the big smoke. Uh, and it's lovely to have you awake. Yes. You're a bit just. tired, you were telling me off, off air. Yeah, I've had a pretty big day. Good I'll for you. Up. Well done. You're gonna bring pretty big week, actually. Can you bring your A game to tonight? I was in the High Court. Did I mention that? Okay, well, let's find out all about of it. Of Australia? <laughs> High Court of Australia. Wow. In there Canberra, in person. Wow. Seriously? Mm. Yeah, yesterday. We will get to that then, clearly. Mm. That's your fun thing. Look forward to hearing yeah, that. Yeah, it wasn't that fun, though. All right. Yeah. Mm. Let's start it off, okay? Uh, Can we miss- mention the headphones? Oh yeah, we're broadcasting. yeah. Why not? Okay, a little bit of uh, tech housekeeping. We're broadcasting on a new device tonight, and it's meant that we've all got cans, which is the industry speak for headphones, and we're all uh, acu- becoming accustomed to the sound of our own voices in our ears, which is really weird. And I'm freaked out, and it's making Emmanuel turn a little bit ASMR, a little bit love song dedications tonight. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you feel like the show's it's going in that like direction, it. true. that's the reason why. Yes. Uh, so we might be combining a few genres tonight, which is always fun. So let's try it with Mr. Emmanuel Kukasharian's topic. He's taking the lead tonight on deplatforming. What yeah. does? What do you mean by deplatforming? What are we talking about? Well, here? you know, they build a stage. And then they, they take it down. Pull it out from under your legs. Pull it under out your from legs. under you. That's right. That's right. Okay. <laughs> That's basically it. That's That's t- what's the legal ramifications of that? So so the best example, or I don't know if it's the best example, but the example that most people would be familiar with would be Donald Trump's removal from essentially every platform there is uh, in light of the, or about the time of the storming of the Capitol building mm-hmm. on, on 6th of January. St- every social media platform he's been well, removed from. Well, not, okay, so Reddit banned him, social media platform, Twitter obviously banned him, YouTube banned him. Banned him. Oh, okay. Uh, Is he on Facebook? Uh, I th- just going down my list. Facebook banned, suspended him on the, on the 6th, and then on the 7th banned him indefinitely. 
Instagram banned him. Snapchat permanently banned him. TikTok removed all of his video speeches, which were believed to incited or motivated the capital raid. It's interesting that the Chinese-held company had more respect for his free speech than the American companies. Um, Apple suspended Parler, the app that was being, they say, used to propagate things that Donald Trump was saying. YouTube not only banned him, but issued a statement that said that due to the disturbing events that transpired yesterday, that's the raid on the Capitol, and given the election results have now been certified starting today, any channels posting new videos with false claims in violation of our policies will receive a strike. So you get, I think, two or three strikes and you're out. Three strikes and you're out, yeah. yeah. So basically Donald Trump has been made a non-entity on social media, but also Shopify is not selling his merchandise. Oh, okay, so, so they're right. not delivering to his house anymore. Well, no, <laughs> no, no, so you can't go and buy a, a Trump t You can't t-shirt. buy a Donald Trump mug. Ah. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, there's a, there's a trial going on in the Senate as, as we speak about whether or not Trump incited violence and so on. But you've effectively had him removed from the internet and and removed his platform. And um, given that, I suppose other platforms aren't going to promote what he says, um, he's effectively been muzzled in terms of his ability to talk to the community. Yeah. Now, the interesting before I come to the law on this, the interesting thing is that this actually works. So a good example of how this works is ISIS. So ISIS had a remarkable propaganda and social media network and, and I don't know um, if you've... You can't see them anymore because they're all off the internet, but if you, ha- if you happen to see one of their propaganda videos, they were incredibly well produced. Some of them were, were designed, obviously, to be quite touching and were the reason why you had otherwise sort of normal Western people flying off to join ISIS without any previous connection because their propaganda and social media was so good. Mm. Um, So they were banned and um, there seems to be some evidence to show that um, they, in the immediate aftermath of that, the number of people who were flying over there to join them just plummeted. Mm. So, I mean... It's still there, the information, isn't it? But you just can't access it. Like, if you're an ordinary person that can't get onto the dark web or, the, you know, the secret web, all of that, it's basically inaccessible to you. It's Yeah, it's basically inaccessible. And certainly, they used to have this... The Reddit had a subreddit that was called Rare, Rare Rashids or something, and that just had all of the ISIS propaganda videos and people mocking it as well. But in the course of mocking it, publishing it. So now you can't even see the propaganda videos that they were using. Um, There was also the event in New Zealand where the guy shot up the mosque and in light of that, laws were introduced to effectively prevent people from accessing or indeed criminalise, I think we criminalised it here in New South Wales, um, accessing videos like that or publishing videos of events like that as they happen. Accessing or publishing, do you remember? I can't remember. Yeah, I right. can't remember. But certainly, I play it, 
the internet which sort of grew up when I was when I was growing up there was this declaration of the independence of cyberspace that people like John Perry Barlow published and the internet was to be a free place with the free exchange of ideas mm. and that's no longer the case um, whether it's a good thing depends on whether or not you think ISIS videos should be shared and whether or not you think political videos should be shared um, but I'll come before we sort of get into that discussion it's worth noting I mean, the first thing your mind jumps to is, well, you're in America, you've got a right to free speech. It's meant to be prevented by an... or preserved, rather, by the First Amendment to the US Constitution. But that amendment, it's worth reading it out, I think, is Congress, and triple underline the word Congress, shall make no law respecting and establishing of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, speech or the press or of the people to peacefully assemble and to petition the government for the redress of grievance. So the First Amendment applies to government. It doesn't apply to private individuals. And in the case that Hillary Clinton took up, that the name just escapes me now, The I don't know if Hillary took it up, but it's the one... The one where they found that speech is money, money equals speech, and you can't stop people donating, the super PAC case. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when she was a candidate. You, way back when, yeah, way yeah, back, yeah, way yeah, back yeah. when it'll come. Um, the That right, in effect, in that case and other cases, has been given to corporations. That is to say, they can push back against any limits of Congress on their speech. But there's nothing of itself that stops corporations mm. from prohibiting speech. Yeah. Now, the argument is a company is a private... Yeah, and, and like this is my argument, wasn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so private people should be allowed to do what they want. Yeah. Well, well, I, think, I remember I put a tweet up. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no. I said, well, isn't um, Twitter... Like it's, a, it's giving Donald Trump a licence to use its product... And it can revoke that license. Yeah. Hmm. So everyone else is just following suit. Is that really a question of speech? Well, I mean, it, one the the hopefully I remember to come back to the everyone else is following suit because one wonders whether there's a cartel uh-huh. conduct that's occurring in these corporations that's prevent that's silencing certain individuals and types of speech. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Which would be a crime. It's about who you or can enforce the right against, right? It's about who you can enforce the right against. So is it a vertical relationship between, say, the citizen and the state? Or is it a right that's enforceable horizontally as between citizens or entities that aren't a state entity? Yeah, that's that yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Because I, I figured, yeah, it's it's almost like amendment. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Jim. Go yeah, ahead. no, I was, th- my argument on Twitter, which Stephen <laughs> picked up on when we were talking in the line in the back channel that we've got to the podcast that led to this being a topic, was that I likened it akin to somebody walking into a bar, and you know, you're not you're being a dickhead, and you get escorted out because your license to be in the bar has been revoked. It's I've used that analogy on Twitter. Yeah. In response to I think a tweet by Dave Sharma who was saying it's a it's a it's a stifling on free speech, but. So this is where it gets interesting. So uh, the first, my first point is this: that there's no such thing as a private company. 
We use the phrase private company and public company to distinguish between those that are closely held and those that are publicly listed. But a company, a corporation, is given a licence or a grant or some something from the government. Every corporation is acting as a corporation because the, the government... Let's it behave that like a license to operate in that yeah, country, right? Yeah, I mean, it used so to you're be, saying that, that that in some sense it's exercising public power, yeah, through its activities. That's right. And therefore, there's what an argument that that human rights would apply vis-a-vis um, a company in terms of an individual. That's right, mm. and 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 that's and there are certain benefits that accrue to a company that we, the polity, the government in a democracy, we the people give to corporations, for example, limited liability. Now, if you want to get together with 15 or 500 of your mates and start Twitter, go for your life, and I will die in a ditch for your right to silence anybody in those circumstances. But if you want my protection for your finances, then fair's fair, we get to extract a price from that, and that is we want our human rights respected. Mm. Now, whether or not that means you ought silence Trump or you ought silence ISIS is a different question, but the threshold principle question is, in my view, that there's no such thing as a private company in that sense and our rights should be enforced against them. Because in the Trump example and in the ISIS example, there's a real question about whether that type of speech would be protected anyway under those constitutional principles. So I think there's sort of two different things going on, right? One is... When you want to say something, do you have a right to say it in a certain way, publish it in a certain way on a certain platform, and can you sort of enforce that right to say something as against a company who holds the platform, holds the website or whatever? But two, whatever entity against you can enforce your right to speak there are some limitations on that recognised anyway. So query whether what Trump has said or what ISIS has said meets that second test. I think that's where we need to maybe go to next. Well, I I mean, it's interesting. In a case called Brandenburg and Ohio, which is 395 US 444, (laughs) Nicely done. Thank you. 1969. Hey, thank you for topping it off. There we go. I hadn't quite finished. Did you get that uni student? Good. We'll wait. Um, In any event, in that case, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned the conviction of a Ku Klux Klan member uh, for violating violating an act, a law, um, that purported to prevent him from teaching what Ku Klux Klan people believe. And what the court said there is... Quote, the mere abstract teaching of the moral propriety or even the moral necessity for a resultant force in violence cannot, end of quote, cannot be banned. Mm. So they have a test that's very much focused on sort of immediate risk of violence, don't mm. they? Mm-hmm. Like s- screaming fire in a crowded theatre, for example, mm. with that immediate risk of danger. Inciting. But if you're talking about violence, it's about direct incitement rather yeah. than well, two, more Well, two, I think. Incite, two aspects to the test. Inciting or producing imminent lawless action or that it's likely to incite or produce such action. Mm. 
So is your argument, Manny, about the corporation and the public aspects of that an argument that these rights, whether in the First Amendment or international instruments or you know, other national bills of rights, is it an argument that they should be amended and expanded? Or are you saying that as a matter of interpretation, a corporation is in fact the state because of its public aspects? I don't think that the common law will flex so far as to put my desired interpretation on it. I think it would require some legislative change, but I think it should happen. I think, let, let's leave aside privately held corporations, but f- for a start, if you are a public listed corporation, you should have, in my view, you, should, you are indistinguishable from the government, particularly if you're over a certain size. I mean, leaving aside the technicalities of the law... Twitter, Google, YouTube, all of these people are as big as the government. They are many, they are bigger than many governments of the world mm. and they have audiences the size of unbelievable size. Mm. Um, so, and it's you know, a, there's yeah. a few policy arguments, like in industrial law, about, you know, arguments to support unfair dismissal laws, for example. Some of the kind of writings on those talk about how corporations and big employers particularly are exercising bureaucratic power effectively um, and therefore they should be susceptible to similar standards of review that the state is. So therefore that's an argument in favour of sort of unfair dismissal laws, for example, that they should be akin to the bureaucracy whose decisions can be reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So there's a lot of sort of aspects of similarity, isn't there, between huge corporations and states in terms of their power over people you know, their capacity to control different sort of aspects of the public debate and so forth, yeah, which in the past would have very much been the realm of states. But now it's sort of quite blurred. Well, I mean, it, in the United States, they go further in that they provide a good Samaritan defence um, under Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act um, that says... Any action taken volunt- sorry, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material um, that is lewd, levicious, filthy, excessive, violent, harassing or otherwise objectionable um, is not actionable, right? Um, even if that material is constitutionally protected. So there's actually a provision in place that prevents people from face from facing any litigation about that kind mm, of stuff so long as it's done in good faith and we all know how that how hard that is to challenge and that provision is aimed at technological companies and yes sort of social media platforms and stuff yeah i mean it started off at the start of the internet when things weren't perhaps as complicated as they are now but that's right and donald trump before his um before his office came to an end was repeatedly trying to get rid of section 230 because of the way that he asserted he was being treated by these companies. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting. that, that If you take a counterfactual approach, I always like to take, when it comes to free speech issues, to look at things from a counterfactual perspective. If, in fact, there was a concerted effort to steal an election and social media refused to broadcast that or did what they did in this case, you know, put things on, that said that, you know, this is untrue, then that would be a grave injustice, right? Imagine if, if Trump had cheated the machines and stolen the election from Hillary Clinton or from 
Um, I've forgotten the guy's name now. How did that happen? Um, Biden. Joe Biden. Biden. From Biden. He's stolen it from Biden. I think that's, I think he yeah, that's his well. plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So I've been off social media. Um, so if, imagine if he'd done that and we weren't allowed to talk about it. We would be horrified. And Except isn't that the same as saying, Manny, you know, imagine if there had been the false creation of a Holocaust story and we are banned from talking about it. To draw the extreme analogy. Well, I don't know that it is as extreme as that. And there are many people who would say that you should have that conversation. Mm. And, I mean, one I mean, of the things... you can have that conversation we, here. You can. You can have you it in the United in States. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting because, on the one hand, the orderly transition of power is so, is so important that there's much to be said for established media outlets supporting that, right? And by that I include the big social media outlets. So regardless of the truth of an election, it's probably better that we don't have people storming the capital. I think political processes can sort things out. On the other hand, what do you do? And what do you do with the... There's more people who voted for Donald Trump than voted for Barack Obama. Those people have now seen the person they voted for silenced... You are creating civil unrest by preventing them from talking to... Or preventing that conversation from happening. Is there an argument, though... <clears throat> like, is there an argument that these social media platforms are obviously quite new and they're, they're unprecedented in terms of the capacity they give to communicate with large amounts of people? So is there an argument that, you know, the big lie is more of a threat and more of a risk than the big lie, you know, might have been in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s or whatever. Therefore, is there an argument that, you know, we do need these restrictions more than perhaps before? Like there are a way to, to respond to the new reality and it's higher destructive force. It's so... Uh, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like I, I was almost swayed by that argument when I first heard it. But then I remembered that, in effect, at best by recklessness, otherwise knowingly, the established media, just before the Second Iraq War, permeated a lie about the existence of weapons of mass destruction that caused untold death and suffering by forcing us into a war that the people didn't want. So the big lie has always been there and always been able to adversely affect the lives of millions and millions of people. So where I come back to is my almost absolutism for free speech. The ISIS is a harder case. Yeah? Mm, yeah. But that's where I land. Hey, is there anything in the American Constitution? So, you know, 51XX under the Australian Constitution, corporations power, right? And it's kind of in play at the moment with the government trying to introduce a media code to get the social media companies to play ball and, and pay news organisations for content that comes up in a search or gets shared on Facebook and such and such. Doesn't the US have something like that and wouldn't they want to run through that to stop someone being deplatformed like Donald Trump? Like when he was, like, did he even, does he, does anything like this exist for him where he could have just gone, executive order, f*** you, I'm Donald Trump, and signing my big and. They would have yeah, to pass no, laws, right, or the, amend existing laws. The, the law actually prevented him. That's the section that I read out before, oh, is okay. that you can't, you can't do that. And he tried his hand with a couple of executive orders, but 
They were nothing more than feints. They, oh. they, you couldn't get past that. So this whole thing has resonance with, for example, the Israel Folau issue, doesn't it? In the sense that he signed a contract which arguably restricted his right to engage in expressions of his religious belief. So the argument is, should that or was that somehow vitiated by some freedom of religion? And I think the sort of dominant view was legally not, because if that's a right, it's a right vis-a-vis the state rather than a right vis-a-vis his employer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the interesting question is, uh, there's undoubtedly, leaving aside the big lie question, there's undoubtedly difficulties with regulating speech on the internet. It's not easy. You can't have people sending child porn, which is a fairly bright line, but there are lines that are sort of more vague than that. And my own view is that what we need to do is make these things easier to litigate under the auspices of the state. So private rights or rights on people that they can action against other people, whether they're corporations or not, to protect freedom of expression. Yeah, and cheap judges, like internet magistrates, whatever you want to do, but some form of scheme that permits me to sue against whatever company for standing on my rights and really just directs them. It doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be complicated, but fairly simply says, look, these are the terms that you set. These terms are outside the bounds of human rights. And so, because what you've got at the moment is that you have private interests making decisions in very uh, non-transparent ways, in ways that are apparently, sometimes they don't even make sense. Like they'll ban people who seem to fit some sort of mainstream narrative and you don't really know why they've just disappeared from the internet. Um, so my own view is the government should lead that and the Australian government should do it. We, we, it's not that hard to do and it would make us leaders. Um, and, I mean, Facebook has set up a committee to try and allow people... Mm, to appeal, to appeal. To Facebook jail. Yeah. Mm. Um, but in my view, it shouldn't be mm. in private hands. Litigation is best done by the state. Should be and we, can, and we yeah. get power that way. That but is what standard would you apply? Because there would have to be then some form of legal standard about what sort of speech is restricted. For example, when you're talking about things like the big lie, it's easy when it's child porn, it's easy when it's threats of a criminal nature. But when you're talking about this sort of political stuff, like should there be a standard where your freedom of speech can be restricted? I mean, it sounds like you would say not. Well, I would say the Americans' Supreme Court had it right. So very direct incitement of violence. That's right. That's right. I mean, arguably Trump did that, though, didn't he? Well, I don't know. I've been off social media. Yeah. So. <laughs> You've been on Clubhouse, though, haven't you? I've been, we're on Clubhouse right now. Yeah. Hey, so in the, at the moment, uh, I, I am so sorry, Felicity Graham, you are next. You Go saw ahead. me draw breath. And I'm so sorry. I didn't hear it, though. These new cans are killing me. Yeah. Please take it away. Well, there was this great tweet that I saw the other day, beginning of the month, um, where this, I think, comedian wrote the beginnings of a limerick. Oh, there once was a man named Eugene who thought 5G was in the vaccine, but a friend of his said, quote, you should instead. And then he predicted that Twitter would add the warning label. So the last line of the limerick is the warning label, get the facts about COVID-19. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Now... 
Twitter banned him from Twitter because of that tweet. And so then he tweets the limerick with his Twitter ban saying, thrown in Twitter jail for being an artist, as his <laughs> next tweet when he got back um, after his temporary suspension, I think it was. But yeah, just, I mean, this whole regulation of speech is so complicated in terms, I mean, obviously it's, the internet's so big, these platforms are so big that obviously it's algorithms and whatever that have to be responding to this stuff and three strikes and you're out and on YouTube and so on. It just, yeah, without being able to have some kind of mechanism for review or as many suggested or some recourse against these big companies which in many ways have much more power than nation states. And the scary thing as well is who decides. Like at the moment, if you look at the last few years, I tend to agree in a kind of broad sense with the decisions they've made in the sense that the stuff they attach the warnings to to the main seems pretty sensible to me. I think the big lie is a lie, et cetera, et cetera. But the kind of looming issue is who decides what's true and what isn't true and who decides what reaches a requisite degree of dangerousness such that the person has to be silenced. Yeah. And you, you were sort of before, Manny, envisaging this future where those decisions are made with kind of malice and bad faith and, you know, potentially politically motivated in a very kind of pernicious way. Yeah, and that's or a scary future. motivated by these companies who make huge amounts of money from mm. Trump being on their platform, drawing heaps of attention to their um, to their platforms, and then you know maybe the wind changes a bit and they decide we're going to boot him off. But there's a real question about why they didn't do it much earlier. Uh, yeah, mm. it's funny how we talk about social media and how important it is for political expression as an argument to sort of allow expression. And you think back to last year when, like, Justice Fagan was saying, you don't need to protest in the street because you can use Facebook. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of this inverse proposition. <laughs> um, like, how important is it really? Like, for Trump, for example, if he can't use Facebook, he's still got every method available to him that politicians have had for the last 2,000 years as those things have developed. It's interesting because I think what happens is... And this is this is the real danger of this kind of conduct is that he does have those methods. He doesn't have the mass method, but what you wind up creating is cells. You wind up creating underground, mm. unknown people talking to each other that are completely removed yeah. from the debate. Yeah. And I don't want to have somebody who thinks, you know, pick, uh, put your conspiracy theory here. I don't want to have that person yeah. hiding away, not part of the zeitgeist. I want to hear their voice. Mm. And contradict them. That's right. Yeah. Well, in order to contradict them. Mm. Have the marketplace of ideas open yeah. so that bad ideas can be talked down. But look at ISIS. I mean, it did help kill it, right? Well, that that's right. It does work, I think. But... Yeah, I mean, the, this bloke had 80 million Twitter followers, mm. right? And they, were, they, they are talking f***ing nonsense. And they you are. can't talk sense yeah. into them. Who? The, the Trump QAnon cult. crazy people. Yeah. Well... They may well, like what they're saying may be nonsense, but the existence of millions of people who believe this thing is something that needs to be front and centre in our zeitgeist because otherwise our policymakers are going to ignore it and it's going to blow up in our face. And that's the problem with silencing them. And I just, I, it's like, why do people believe that COVID 19 is a massive conspiracy? Why? 
because institutions have told lies about it. The messaging that has come from the government has been, at, particularly at the start, was wildly fluctuating. Mm. Wear masks, don't wear masks. It's been politically motivated measures, there's no yeah. doubt about that. And incompetence up the wazoo. And so the layman who thinks government can't be that bad comes to the conclusion that there's a conspiracy. The truth is the government's that bad and the media is that bad and the communication organs of our society are gravely damaged. So what you can't have now are the crazies, but you can't also have lies, you can't also have truths that are so far contra-narrative outside what they call the Overton window. Um, and that's a huge problem. And the hypocrisy is a problem. Like, I... It, the funny thing to my mind was that Trump says, you know, I won the election and underneath it it says this has been disputed. Biden says I won the election and it doesn't say this is disputed under his. So... Because an object, uh, you know, a decision has been made not sort of necessarily objective because these social media people are really quite... really involved in the political process, including as donors and so forth. Yeah. But a decision's been made that one is objectively true and one is objectively false, yeah. which I think is right in this case. But I guess the broader issue is who decides going forward. Well, I mean, and these people are not objective. They're politically involved. So can you trust them? And what facts right. do they decide on? Like, are they examining every fact and making a call, is this, is this objective truth or not? Obviously not. Well, they I can't. mean, a lot of facts the they're not looking at, just, right? That's because right. they just pick, you know, particular situations that... I suppose a prominent. Yeah, that's right. You know, the power of objective truth is a power that society once ascribed to God. Right? And now it's literally in the hands of social media people, many of whom are quite young, many of whom have lived in a quite an isolated bubble all of their lives. That's frightening. So while That's we're so on the topic of uh, social media, Manny has an ASMR channel that you want to promote. Is that right? Yeah, on only fa- the wigs on OnlyFans. The wigs on OnlyFans. <laughs> uh, and you can join our social media uh, channel. What are we? What am, I, what, am I, what am I calling it? You can follow us on the computers <laughs> at Wigs Podcast on Twitter at E Kirkusherian, Mr. Manuel. Yes, also on Twitter at Twitter at Jim Mins. I don't know why you'd want to follow me. You're on Twitter, aren't you? I am. What's your handle? At Flick Graham. <clears throat> you, can, you don't follow me on Twitter. Can you rectify that, please? <laughs> sure. I'm very offended. I've doing noticed. It now. Please. <laughs> but actually, now don't worry about it, actually. You're probably doing yourself a favour by not following me. And you've got a private account, don't you, Deputy Mayor? I do have a Twitter account, but it's only for the purpose of stalking other people. <laughs> Bring it out. And trolling <laughs> occasionally. I'm recording this. <laughs> I'm going to bleep that name out. Uh, okay, and also, and we're live on... Uh, Clubhouse. Clubhouse. <laughs> oh, but I've got a Facebook account. Yeah, Stephen Lawrence, true. Deputy Mayor, Dubbo Region. That's actually quite active. I'm now mm. following Jim. You don't need to. You're probably doing yourself a favour by not. Okay, cool. And back into the interlude music. Welcome back to the Wigs, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, fantastic to be in the team, the room, 2021 as a group. Uh, I'm feeling it already. And um, hot. I'm, no, yeah, I'm just, it's hot I'm just, yeah, it's hot, but it's also it's just good chat vibes, you know. Mm. Um, we're going to kick on with uh, co- the coercion bill that's currently before New South Wales Parliament. Is it before, or has it just been drafted? Who knows? Felicity Graham is going to get to the bottom of it, 
and she takes it away. The mic is yours, Felicity. Thanks, Jim. So, at the end of last year, the New South Wales government, the Department of Communities and Justice, announced that they would be establishing a parliamentary joint select committee to hold a public inquiry to examine this issue of coercive control. And we need to talk a bit about the definition throughout the discussion because that's a pretty difficult one to pin down. But a definition that has been put together is that coercive control is a form of domestic abuse involving repeated patterns of abusive behaviour which can include physical, sexual, psychological, emotional or financial abuse, the cumulative effect of which is to rob victims of their autonomy and independence. So if we start with that as a sort of broad definition, accepting that it is um, covering a huge type of a, a huge it's not an amendment to a bill is it like isn't conduct. there is there already a domestic violence uh, legislation piece of legislation that this yeah so in new south wales we have the crimes domestic and personal violence act which came in in 2007 and that creates a range of um, criminal and civil law responses to domestic and personal violence so under the criminal law there are certain offenses that are created including intimidation and stalking and breaching um, protection orders and then under the civil uh, section of the regime there's the creation of this or codification of this uh, regime in the courts to make orders for the protection of certain people either in a domestic relationship or in a personal relationship with someone else to protect them from violence effectively Mm -hmm. and other forms of harm. So the, the, the bill that's currently before the New South Wales Parliament is a bill that's been introduced by a, an opposition member of parliament, but there's some expectation that there might be a government bill introduced down the track as a result of this parliamentary committee process Mm -hmm. it's worth looking at i think the opposition bill even though i I think it's pretty likely that that bill will never come into um come into force by way of an act so it's going to be voted down by the government right i I expect that's Mm. what will happen Uh, and that was introduced by who by anna Anna watson Watson, is it anna watson yeah so can I just sorry to interrupt? Yeah, yeah. Would, is that a political move for it to be voted down? Like, the, like the government would want to adopt their own policy? Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Like that was, for listeners who aren't attuned to the politics involved in Macquarie Street and would just see this as, you know, an attempt at a at a relatively from a from a good place form of regis- legis- We're going to talk about whether or not it, we, we mm. believe it is or not. Um, that would be a political line why it would just be voted down. It's, it's not voted down because people are... I think the Attorney-General Mark Speakman has publicly said that the issue is complex. The government needs to conduct its own sort of policy consideration and then do its own bill. Yes. So the government's certainly not saying we 100% agree with this bill, but we, you know, we want to do it ourselves. Yeah. I think they're saying, you know, this needs to be looked at more. We need to yeah. mull over it. And so I mean, we'll the vote it down until... obviously not generally speaking, in a, in a position to do the same level of policy analysis that the government is. Sure. And <clears throat> amongst experts within this field, particularly experts who work primarily with women um, who are victims of domestic violence, 
and and other forms of abuse. It's a controversial matter whether um, what's proposed in this bill, sort of in principle, um, is the right way to go um, for protecting victims and making them safer. So, so is the idea the, to protect them from coercive control, or is the idea that if you protect them from coercive control, you stop other offences, other more violent things? Yeah, look, that's a good question because I think part of the context for this debate is some analysis that the coroner's court has done by way of reviewing um, deaths that have occurred in domestic violence context and findings that have been made in relation to the presence of coercive controlling behaviour within a relationship that then ultimately leads to the death mm. of um, a partner or a, a de facto or a, or a um, spouse of... And that's totally unsurprising, person. right? Like, you know, for anyone that thinks about domestic violence and works in that area, you wouldn't be surprised by the proposition that a lot of domestic homicides are preceded by controlling behaviour. Because it's so often jealous men, like, who kill women, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the... I don't know if jealous is the right word. Yeah, I don't know if that sort of captures the Mm. whole um, dynamic of the relationship, but certainly this notion that domestic violence relationships involve aspects of use of power and seeking to control and subordinate the other person and that that can happen in a range of different ways in the context of an intimate relationship that doesn't need to necessarily involve physical violence, but it can involve a whole range of non-physical conduct, um, that that is something that is associated with then homicides. That's something that's certainly borne out by the data. Mm. Um, So that's part of the context. Whether or not the criminalisation of coercive controlling behaviour is likely to either A, reduce that Mm. type of behaviour in and of itself or B, reduce the likelihood of relationships um, ending in the homicide of a person in that relationship or a former partner, for example. I think that's a real question and that's those are real questions about whether or not the the aim of the law in mm. perhaps trying to achieve those things, whether it would actually bear out, and there's some and you've got to ask those two questions overseas that suggests that this is not the way to go, and that it's not going to it might actually exacerbate the problem mm. for particularly women in indigenous communities or from migrant backgrounds or other marginalised um, sectors of the community that this kind of prosecution, which involves quite a detailed analysis of the relationship between two people and what's really going on and where the power really lies and who's the primary aggressor and so on, that that's quite complicated and that police can get it wrong, particularly if you draft the law, as we'll talk about, so broadly that it's really up to police and and prosecutorial discretion as to who to charge or with what. Um, So if you assume the answer to those two questions is yes that it will reduce the amount of intimate partner killing and will reduce the amount of coercive control going on. 
Is that like a tick to these laws? Does that mean that these laws are a good idea? Like, is there any other downside? Because one that I can think of is these laws have got a very high potential for false allegations to be made because the conduct involved is by its nature so elusive, I think, in terms of, you know, always proving beyond a reasonable doubt. And a lot of the behaviour in and of itself is often going to be quite innocuous and it's going to depend on context and intent as to whether it really is coercive control. Yeah, so I think it's worth just outlining exactly what the types Mm. of behaviour are because I think some examples can really elucidate that and I think it's pretty easy to come up with scenarios where a certain chain of text messages that say, you know, where are you, have you finished work Mm. yet, are you on your way home yet, Um, have you finished the shopping, you know, how much was the shopping today, blah, 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 blah. Or even controlling money. Like in some families and relationships – one partner will dole out money to the other and that can be perfectly innocent and just to do with who's good at handling money and totally. who's kind of doing it. In other contexts, it can look like extreme paternalism and control. Yeah. So the current proposed bill creates a new offence and it criminalises conduct that has or is reasonably likely to have one or more of the following effects, making the other person dependent on or subordinate to the person, Isolating the other person from friends, relatives, or other sources of support. Can we can we, can we go through these one by one? Yeah. So sure, sure. making the wife, other person dependent yeah. or subordinate. So if reasonably likely to. Reasonably likely to. So if my wife mm. says to me day in day out, Emmanuel, when we have a child, I want you to stay at home and look after the child. Then leaving aside the defence, which will come through, she would be guilty of this. I, I want you to stay home and do what I say. You know, you handle that, but. I will pay you. You know, I'll make the money. You can be dependent on me. She'd be guilty of that offence, leaving aside the defence. Yeah, okay. Isolating the other person from friends, relatives, I suppose or other it might depend, though, mightn't it, on whether it was reasonably likely to have that impact on you to make me dependent. So it will make me dependent because I require her. Except it won't if, in the context of the relationship between you, you both know that that you won't accede to that sort of demand or instruction. But I, I'm saying I, I decide to stay at home. Oh, so you do accede to oh, Yeah, I do accede to yeah, yeah, I'm saying, like, yeah, well, you look after me. Mm. I'll be dependent on you. Bang, you're guilty. Mm. Now, maybe there's a defensive reason to come through, but on the face of it, prim face, you're guilty. Mm. Isolating the other person from friends. My six-year-old child, I am not permitting you to go next door mm. anymore to hang out with that guy. Right? Guilty. Or, I mean, you might, in a very normal relationship, have a situation arise where your partner's friend is just in the context of interpersonal relationships between people, causing trouble, causing offence, someone that you don't want in your life, and you say to your partner quite legitimately, look, I really don't want us to be friends with John anymore because it's causing too many dramas. And that's, you know, you would hope it wouldn't arise too much, but it's not necessarily extreme behaviour to have that conversation. Or even other relatives Mm. that you might Mm. say, look, when we see this member of your family, it just turns into a fight. Which is not to ignore the reality of domestic violence relationships and you know it when you see it sort of stuff. But I think it's more just to expose how incredibly difficult it is to draft laws like this. Exactly. I think that's it's a drafting challenge Mm. which hasn't been met. It's failed miserably. Mm. Yeah. 
So the next one is controlling, regulating, or monitoring the other person's day-to-day activities, which, as I said <laughs> before, you know, sending text messages, where are you, are you going to be home, I'm about to cook dinner. I mean, that's that common courtesy in, some, in a lot of Why didn't you take the garbage out last <laughs> yeah. night, Stephen? You know. Why are you home late and you haven't told me where you are? Just let me know where you are. Yeah. Nine months. <laughs> Send him away. Take him down. Depriving the other person of or restricting the other person's freedom of action. Bearing in mind that this, under the New South Wales drafting, applies as between a parent or carer and child. Mm. So, Freedom of action in what context? Just anything? Anything. So what about, honey, you are not going to Bali this year. We can't afford it. Yep. Guilty. <laughs> Guilty. A, a freedom of action. You're six years old. You're, you're 14 years old. I'm not letting you go to that party tonight. Mm. Right? Except is this applicable to kids? It is. Yes. In New South Wales it oh, is. As between parents and children. It, it is. is. But that is what you do to your children. You <laughs> do right. control them in every way. It's applicable That's to called cats, parenting, Stephen. It, cats. I'm putting the cat outside because I'm upset with you. That is, in subsection three of the section we're going through right now, could potentially make you guilty of this offence. Cats and dogs. I think it comes from a from a good place. Well, I mean, it would be put by many that this is an attack on families. And I would not... I I don't Mm. believe that it is an attack on families. I think this is a response to a legitimate problem that exists of domestic violence that shouldn't be diminished in any way. Mm. And I think it's a wholly inappropriate response. There's so some sort of, things that yeah. you just can't, you, that you just can't regulate with the criminal law. Yeah, I mean, you know? well, the question, I guess, I'm, I want to know is, are people falling through the cracks that much that this bill needs to be drafted at all? That, that's pure, out of pure ignorance. Well, once, a, once every nine days... Yeah, a woman's killed. A woman's oh, no. killed in this country. Absolutely. And would this cure? Is this the cure? Like, what? What, what are we it. missing? What? What's missing in the criminal? Well, law? a lot of experts think that this would actually exacerbate the problem. There's overseas examples of these laws, right? Yeah, and I'm yeah. going to come to particularly the Scottish and English ones. We should go they, through the list, though. Yeah, we will. Yeah. We will. Okay, let's finish that list. So, the next one is depriving the other person of or restricting the other person's access to support services, including the services of health practitioners and legal practitioners. That probably shouldn't happen in a frightening, relationship. Yeah, frightening, humiliating, degrade, degrading or punishing the other person. You skipped school today? I'm no so stay in your room. Stay in your room. Mm. Whoops. I mean, I also I mean, frightening, of, you frightening. do frighten your children. Oh god. I mean, yes. smack them on the bum it frightens them, right? Oh, why well, don't do that? <laughs> I mean, I used to live with a person who knew that I could get frightened quite easily by s- quite simple things. So they'd sort of jump out from behind a door or things like that. Mm. But it usually ended up in quite Is this a me that scenario. used to do that? No. <laughs> really? Because... we used to live together. I'm, I'm just I remember doing you. that. <laughs> well, it used to be quite funny because they would do that, but then I would scream so loudly that it would really frighten them because they weren't expecting that extreme response. And so... But we would both be guilty of the offence, Prime Facey. Sure. Fuck, my Frightening boy, each other. Yeah. My three-year-old would be pressing charges against me every night. I, I'm mm. always turning into a monster in front of him. Imagine having your in kid fun. who's never been scared. Oh, yeah. mm. Turning 21, yeah. you know? Okay, yeah. so the offence carries five years under this proposal, five years imprisonment. Um, there's an aggravated offence that carries up to ten years imprisonment. So how do you aggravate the offence? What's the... 
kids. Circumstances of the children's too. Kids. Then it also applies to conduct that occurs outside of New South Wales, so long as the victim or complainant is a person who resides within New South Wales ordinarily. And then there's this defence of reasonableness where the conduct was reasonable in the particular circumstances. A few things to note, I think, particularly by comparison to some of the other jurisdictions. So is that the conduct overall or each individual instance? Because you would think these offences when charged will invariably rely upon a pattern, (coughs) like a series of behaviours over a period of time. And that's what it's trying to capture, I think, in terms of part of – it's trying to look at the broader context Mm. of the relationship and pull away from what's called incident-based. Yeah criminalisation where it's like there was an assault in mm. on this day. Um, so it's trying to look at the broader context of a relationship and how... Um, and that's totally understandable on a lot of levels in the sense that, you know, incident-based sort of analysis always falls short, you know, to the extent that it kind of captures or conveys the reality of a relationship. But you can engage in more kind of holistic analysis in lots of different ways other than through the creation of criminal laws, mm. you know, and the prosecution of them. I mean, it might be relevant to AVOs and, uh, you know, other measures that you might put into place, what services someone has access to. But the blunt instrument of the criminal law is another whole proposition. It's outrageous. I mm. mean, this, this can, there should be incredible amounts of resources put towards fixing this problem and none of them should go to the police. Right, they should go to. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not an expert in the treatment and dealing with these sorts of issues, but I am an expert in the criminal law, and I know that this is a, a huge mistake from that perspective. I mean, this government's closed down DV shelters, yeah, and brought in stay-at-home this sort of policy. So it rubs a bit when you see these laws being created when the policy and the resources are not really there. Yeah. One of the interesting questions I have about this is why does it only apply to domestic situations? If these things are bad in relationships, why are they not bad in all relationships? And I suppose the answer is because then political parties couldn't keep their their politicians in check. There There is coercive control in so many parts of of employment relationships. Employment relationships are yeah. by their very nature coercive. Mm. So what you can wear, what you can post on social media, yeah. what you can do in uniform, what you can do even outside of work in some contexts. And that's you can where be monitored, you can have secret cameras, all sorts of things. Can't, yeah. And so this is where the people <laughs> who will say this is an attack on family will come back. It's like, well, why are we limiting it? If in principle this conduct is bad. It's bad. Let's figure out how to prevent it. Let's figure out how to get society away from it. Noble goals. But if it works, then maybe there's a stronger argument. Does it work for you? Like, what does this overseas stuff show? So there's an there's an expert from the US, Lee Goodmark, who has a real history of just working with basically victims in this space, and she has a sort of overall critique of the criminal justice system being the the mechanism through which we try to address this social problem of domestic violence and domestic abuse. Basically, 
the evidence in the in the US is that this kind of criminalization and court process response doesn't deter domestic violence and it doesn't lower rates of domestic violence and in some cases can actually result in true victims being misidentified as primary aggressors when they are actually trying to defend themselves, for example, and so women being prosecuted when they're actually true victims. Um, and she... Oh, so the man uses the, mm. the legislation against the woman. Yeah, or the police, you know, turn up to a scene or receive some kind of complaint and they, they get it wrong in terms of what's really going on mm. and um, prosecute someone who, in the context of the relationship, is really a victim. Because um, a lot of women who are victims of actual assault will have engaged in this conduct. Because a lot of relationships that have DV in them are quite dysfunctional in lots of ways. Mm. That's you know quite a common pattern that you see. You might be monitoring your husband to make sure he doesn't beat you up when you come home. Mm. Yeah. So, her... Um, this is Lee Goodmark. Um, or trying to stop him drinking. Yeah. Mm. Um, Stopping him to have access to money so he won't drink and bash you. Yes, Stephen. <laughs> I'm going to finish a sentence. <laughs> so she um, says, you know, this criminalisation approach is kind of held out to victims as if it is the answer, where it's really not and we need to be offering people more. First of all, we need to look at what's really going on and one of the big kind of clear messages from the data is that low-income women are much more likely to be subject to intimate partner violence and so really we need to deal with the basic economic needs of communities and there needs to be money going into these communities. We need to look at the unemployment and underemployment of men in communities as well because there's a big correlation between, you know, poverty across the board in a community um, and that they're manifesting in violence in relationships. And so there needs to be an economic response that really addresses those inequalities. And then also kind of sometimes... Can I, can sorry, I just, go ahead. Sorry, can I just say, because I'll be punished by someone, a friend of mine who runs a domestic violence law firm um, that helps survivors who are in particular from middle-class families... She would say that those statistics are wrong and, in fact, it's just massive underreporting of the other classes of society mm. that experience domestic violence. I, I don't know, but I, I think there's an argument that that might be right. Anyway, sorry. Mm. Okay. I mean, maybe that's right. Um, another big correlation where there's intimate partner violence is adverse childhood experiences and I think from our experience um, working out west at the Aboriginal Legal Service that's certainly something that you can see comes through every day in the local court and the district court when you're acting for domestic violence perpetrators and you speak to them about their personal background that there's this common thread <coughs> of having been exposed to relationships where violence is a method of communication and a way of conflict resolution in a relationship um, through fists and through um, abusive, threatening behaviour. Trying to address kind of early intervention with children um, and, and 
really community-based service provision for, um, you know, outside of the court system. So that's that's kind of her take. Um, I mean, obviously, she's not saying, you know, there should be no criminal law um, and that, that's not a tenable yeah. proposition. But there are, there's, there are a number of people in Australia and overseas from the, you know, domestic violence and women's legal services kind of sector mm. that have really said we need a lot of caution here. Yeah. This is mm. not this is not the panacea that you might all hoping be hoping that it is because one, it might not actually fix the problem mm. and two, it actually might make things worse for really vulnerable women and children and, you know, that's just totally counterproductive. Yeah. I mean, like in fairness to the drafters, I guess it's coming from a place of, it's you know, it's coming from a from a place of uh, assistance and trying to right a perceived wrong. Uh, it's the classic inability of many people in those positions to engage in second order thinking, yeah. right? And that's the problem. I do think though, the drafters here would do well to look at what's happening overseas because Scotland came up with their final drafting in the Domestic Abuse Scotland Act 2018 after quite a long consultation process and kind of research and so on into the challenges in drafting in this area. And similarly, the England and Wales version in the Serious Crime Act 2015 in Section 76. And there are some tweaks there that I think at least bear some... Um, bear looking at because particularly around like intention of mm. the alleged offender and also <coughs> looking at the question of... Is there an intent element in the New South Wales one? Not in the current mm. opposition drafting one. <coughs> but for example, in the Scottish... I don't know about oppositions drafting this sort of stuff. I think it's... I suppose it makes a political point, but... They don't <coughs> really have the resources They're not to in get a good right. position to do it. No, yeah. they don't. Yeah. I, well, I don't fault them. I mean, like, you know... I, I mean, don't draft someone someone drafting a bill. It can provoke debate, I suppose, yeah, and yeah, drive yeah, the government yeah. as well. It's yeah. drafted by the <coughs> by the parliamentary council, right? Yeah, but the policy instructions presumably come from, come from the opposition. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, for example, in in Scotland, right, the provision that criminalises abusive behaviour and it's limited to a partner or ex partner. So you're you're not dealing with children. You're not dealing with you know housemates, cats former housemates, all this kind of stuff that the New South Wales drafting would capture. So you've got to have a reasonable person would consider the course of behaviour to be likely to cause the victim to suffer physical or psychological harm. Mm. That's important as an element. And the perpetrator either intends by that course of behaviour to cause the victim harm or is reckless as Mm. to that effect. But the commission of the offence doesn't depend on the course of behaviour actually causing the victim to suffer Mm. that type of harm. Psychological harm includes fear, alarm and distress. And then the focus is on prohibiting abusive behaviour. That's then defined. um, And it's defined as a few different things, either by... um, behaviour that's violent, threatening or intimidating. I think that's pretty uncontroversial. That's already conduct that is criminalised within the law. 
Then behaviour directed at the partner or ex-partner or at a child of that person or at another person that either has as its purpose or among its purposes one or more of this list or would be considered by a reasonable person to be likely to have one or more of these relevant effects. And then the list is basically similar to what we went through before, making them dependent or subordinate, isolating from friends, relatives or sources of support, controlling, regulating or monitoring day-to-day activities, etc. So I think those kind of intention and purpose framing or characterization of the conduct that's that's quite important mm. i think as being better um connected <clears throat> to what you're actually trying to address here yeah. um whereas the new south wales one seems to be very focused on particular actions yeah rather than the attainment of some overall state of control right so yeah. in the england and wales version it's where you repeatedly or continuously engage in behaviour towards another person that is controlling or coercive at the time you're personally connected and the behaviour has a serious effect on the targeted mm. per- person and the perpetrator knows or ought to know that it would have such th- such an effect. And serious effect means it causes them fear on at least two occasions that violence will be used against them or it causes them serious alarm or distress, which has a substantial adverse effect on their usual day-to-day activities. So there's an actual impact upon the victim that's required under that um, under that regime. So is there any evidence whether these laws have reduced offending overseas? Is that I mean, they're all pretty new, aren't they? Yeah, look, so there's been some analysis of the degree to which the laws have actually been used. Um, So, for example, in the UK, in the first couple of years, there were a bit over 300 cases that went to the magistrate's court. In the following year, there are almost 1,200 cases, so ramping up in terms of the use of the... um, use of the offences... And look, kind of running through the different outcomes about over to the half resulted in convictions. The average custodial sentence was 20.2 months. Mm, it's pretty high. Quite high. Yes. Mm. Um, high conviction rate too. Yeah. Probably charging the serious ones. Mm, where there's a lot of evidence. That's how they start. Um, so... In Scotland, what's the data for Scotland? Um, as at May 2020, so this came in 2019, April, as at May 2020, 1,700 1700-odd crimes under the legislation have been recorded by Scottish police as having been initiated. And that's quite high. I guess, in, in the context of it only being the early stages. But I don't think there's evidence that drills down to, well, how effective are the laws. Mm. And I think it's going to be pretty difficult to <coughs> actually establish that as well. Is it going to be a defence of you both engaging in the conduct? Like, does that somehow vitiate the 
intent required or something? It was reasonable because... You're both doing you're it. You're both doing it. Mm, don't know. It's Probably it, not, I suspect. I think we should touch on why... I think, you know, we, we mentioned that there's this defence of reasonableness and move fairly quickly away from it. The reason why that's... Bad, like, that, that doesn't solve the problem, as it were, is one, it's a defence, which means... You get charged and then it's on you mm. to try and prove it, which means lots of people will be charged and then have to go through the rigmarole of defending themselves. And two, it's just – who knows what's reasonable? Mm. So know? it's interesting to look at also the defence in the magistrate. Wales. Yeah. Mm. There's two parts of the defence there, part subjective, part objective. So it's a defence where the accused believed that they were acting in the best interests of the other party – which is quite a high test because you might think that what you're doing is... I reckon that quite a few DV offenders would think that in a warped way. Sure, but mm. even I think some people might... I don't know. You might not think you're acting in the best interest of them, but that it's still reasonable in their circumstances to do it. I suppose um, you can imagine relationships where there's some imbalance whether sort of intellectually or because of a disability or something where you might be acting in quite a controlling way but you would be thinking that it's in their best interest to kind of monitor their money or etc cetera, etc cetera. someone that's Stop ill them from gambling or yeah yeah it's funny like the things that i would see i mean you can see somewhere that there's some sort of this conduct that would merit criminal punishment but that conduct seems to be to be so serious, like if you're really engaging in this, you should be doing five years on the bottom. You should be doing five years in prison. The penalty should be 14 years imprisonment. There should be a standard non-parole period, or maybe not because it's new, but there should be 14 years imprisonment, 20 years imprisonment, and it should be strictly indictable. Mm. And then juries can figure out what's reasonable or not. And what's happening, what's proposed here, sadly, is effectively a summary offence. And I, I mean... I'd, if there's any policymakers who are listening to this, if you think this is serious, treat it seriously. Put it up in the district mm. court. Have the crown running it. Have juries decide. Don't just make this, you know, a little tick the box thing because it's cheaper. Yeah. And the way this will probably work will be it'll be a tack on. So you'll have maybe three or four common assaults and an ABH relating to a series of incidences. Then you'll have a coercive control, and that'll be addressed at the end of evidence in chief. You know, the police prosecutor will say, oh, did he do this, did he do this, did he do this, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and I can see uh, the potential for it to be a tack on. Yeah. And it will know. just undermine the whole thing, you know. And the real guys, the guys who are going to go and kill their wives, are not going to be troubled by that because they're going to go to jail for the three assaults anyway. And what you will have is that... I mean, this conduct, if it's happening, well, it is happening, needs to be and ought to be investigated properly. Those real crimes need to be investigated. They need the, 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 the eye and the care that an indictable trial brings. Anyway. Yeah, not least because they're... I think I was talking about this before, but there, there is high potential for false allegations, I reckon, with this offence. Yeah. Because the conduct is potentially, in and of itself, kind of day-to-day and innocuous. It's all about, it's all about context and intent. So it'll be an easy allegation to make, I suspect, sometimes. It's also just worth noting in this discussion our friends down in Tasmania because they oh, are the got only jurisdiction already, they? in Australia who 
have introduced some offences that kind of broadly cover this field, not exactly, but um, pick up some aspects of it. So Section 8 of the Family Violence Act 2004, Tasmania, is an offence that criminalises economic abuse in a relationship between um, two partners. And so that involves coercing one's partner or spouse to relinquish control over assets or income, disposing of property owned by the person's spouse or partner, owned jointly or owned by an affected child without their consent, preventing one's spouse or partner from participating in decisions over household expenditure, preventing one's spouse or partner from accessing joint financial assets for the purpose of meeting normal household expenses, withholding or threatening to withhold reasonable financial support, carries two years imprisonment, Um, It has to be pursued with the intent to unreasonably control or intimidate one's spouse or partner or with the intent to cause mental harm, apprehension or fear to the partner. Um, But there's no requirement for them to suffer actual harm. And then section nine is emotional abuse or intimidation, which covers where a person knows or ought to know that it's likely to have the effect of unreasonably controlling, intimidating or causing mental harm, apprehension or fear in the spouse or partner. No particular behaviours are prescribed in the legislation, but an example is limiting the freedom of movement of one spouse or partner by means of threats or intimidation. I mean, that's already an offence here. Mm. Straight up. Yep. So... uh, Intimidation. The other Mm. thing to note about these provisions are no charges at all were laid under these provisions in the first three years of them being in force. Um. There have been some charges since, but it's these <coughs> these offence provisions have been rarely used. So I can see a lot of cases involving a lot of text messages um, and Facebook messages. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so easy to put a particular gloss on that kind of chain of communication. Mm. Yeah, and they're, because if, if they're on a summary matters, there'll literally be no investigation beyond mm. that. Here are the text messages. They make person X look like they're controlling person Y. Mm. They're guilty. You know? And really, if you're going to run these, you need a holistic assessment of the circumstances mm. and commiserately increased penalties to deal with that. Like if you, you get to see, the court gets to see just how screwed up someone's life's been by someone. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Okay, uh, let's get back to it. Uh, Mr. Stephen Lawrence, you're the last cab off the rank and you're going to talk to us about the decision on the jurisdiction over Palestine, the recent International Court, ICC? International Criminal Court. International Mm. Criminal Court. So the International Criminal Court or the pre-trial chamber of the International Criminal Court, which um, is basically three judges of the International Criminal Court, have made a decision 
that the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction um, over Palestine. Mm. And when they talk about Palestine, they're talking um, about the West Bank, uh, East Jerusalem um, and the Gaza Strip. Okay. The, it's a re- really interesting decision. And obviously the whole Israel-Palestine thing um, is really political. So, you know, it's a judgment that, you know, traverses all of these highly politicised legal issues. Um, so it's really interesting. Um, it's a 2-1 decision. Um, the issue of whether the ICC has jurisdiction over Palestine or crimes committed um, in the Palestinian territories arose because the uh, the state of Palestine in 2016 acceded uh, to the Rome Statute, which is uh, the governing uh, statute um, or treaty um, of the International Criminal Court. Okay. So the International Criminal Court, as people probably know, is an international court established by a multilateral treaty. That's what I was going to ask you because I don't yeah. know anything about it. Okay. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an international body. Um, it's a court. It's established under a treaty uh, that's called the Rome Statute because it was signed in Rome and it exists to try grave allegations of breaches um, of the law of war, uh, crimes against humanity, um, is, aggression is, and genocide. Is this the Hague? It's in the Hague. Right. Yeah. So that's um, they, a lot of international Yeah, a lot okay. of international organizations are in the Hague. Okay, because you always hear that. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I think you guys have mentioned it many times before. And I'm always like, oh the Hague, yes, of course. Now this is the definition. Yeah. So the headquarters of the ICC um, are in the Hague. Um, it's penal yep. sort of institution is in the Hague. And um, is it, are its decisions recognized? Depends yeah, on like it are. only has jurisdiction. Um, um, over territory um, or nationals of states that um, are signatories to the Rome Statute. Okay. <coughs> and so uh, its official recognition of Palestine would have ramifications of the Israeli government. It does in the sense that once, as it has declared, it has jurisdiction over crimes committed on the territory um, of Palestine. It's admitting that which, Palestine exists. Yeah, which according to its decision... Um, is the West Bank, Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem. It has crime, it, it has jurisdiction over Israelis who've committed crimes of the requisite degree of seriousness in those territories. Um, yeah, so the jurisdictional preconditions under the statute are that you're a national um, of a signatory state or the crime is committed um, on the territory of a signatory state. So it has significance for Israel, even though Israel... Um, is not party to the Rome Statute and is strongly opposed to the International Criminal Court, um, as is uh, the United States. Really? Mm. Oh, yeah, strongly. I yeah. didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, Australia um, is signatory to it, and we signed up, I think, back in 1995. But we have sort of cooperated with America in different ways, have agreed not to hand over their nationals to it. And, in fact, we filed a submission, or the Australian government filed a submission in this case, um, opposing the recognition of jurisdiction over Palestine. So we're sort of halfway house, I guess, on these issues, but we're certainly a signatory state. Mm. So the decision um, is well worth a read. It's on the ICC website. It's not worth a read. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> can, I, can I just read... It's not exactly... Can I read paragraph six out? Sort of heavyweight analysis. Sexist radio voice. <laughs> this is paragraph six of the judgment, which someone will cite later, although why... On 21 January 2020, 
The chamber issued the, quote, decision on prosecutor's application for an extension of the page limit, end quote, thereby, I, one, granting the prosecutor's, quote, application for extension of pages for request under Article 19.3 of the statute. To, I'm going to stop there. There's effing six pages of this rubbish. Like, who, you know. There's more on that stuff. Right. In terms of paragraphs, then there is on the substantive question gotcha. of whether Palestine's unreadable, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> unreadable. So, okay, is it like five years old and somebody finally got to the end of it, and that's why we know about it to now? Look, today, I think or? you know. I mean, this is in terms of you know the traditions or the legal traditions that are sort of reflected in this court. I think in a lot of ways it sort of reflects the civil tradition more. So, from a common law point of view, you don't find the extensive scholarly analysis that maybe we're more used to. It's interesting, Justice Hunt was, of the New South Wales Supreme yeah, Court, was. was at least the precursor to the ICC. Yeah. And he he went there and discovered that everyone else was an academic, all the other judges were academics. He was appointed by Australia. And so he imputed into the precursors of the ICC the New South Wales procedures because mm. he was the only one who knew anything about that kind of thing. Um it seems that the ICC has strayed from that if they're issuing judgments on the <laughs> <laughs> Which, a, gratefully, our justices do not do uh, here. There's a discussion in there about how the prosecutors' submissions were rejected because they exceeded, exceeded the page length. <laughs> and then, and then they had to refile enough. them. Yeah, anyway, there's a lot of stuff in there that's not interesting. But there, it's, it's, I think it's very interesting in terms of this intersection between law and politics um, yeah. and the issues, you know, are kind of inseparable. Um, so there was two, m- there was two main issues um, in the case. Um, just going back a little bit though, just to give a bit more context. So um, as I said, about five years ago, Palestine acceded to the Rome Statute. So the sort of background to that, was that in 2012 the General Assembly of the, of the United Nations passed um, a resolution that recognised Palestine as a state, effectively, um, a non-member state, but um, a state um, in terms of the General Assembly's view. They then, um, after that, acceded to the Rome Statute, as I said. Then in May of 2018 they referred the situation in Palestine to the court um, or to the chamber of the court. And the referral was limited to things occurring after June um, of 2014. And it was a general referral. So the court is seized of jurisdiction, not just in respect of actions by the Israeli government um, or Israeli ADF, but also Hamas um, and other Palestinian groups. And I've. I've sort what of about other state? I don't actors. think there's any relevant state entities involved, um, as far as all the analysis that I've scene of the referral. The main parties seem to be um, Hamas, uh, the Israeli ADF, and some suggestions um, of the Palestinian Authority, but they don't sort of tend to engage in sort of acts of armed hostility or whatever. They don't have a sort of army or anything of that nature. Mm. Um, so just on the acceding to the Rome Statute, can you just explain the position sort of internationally compared to the Australian position? Because under the Australian submissions <coughs> to this court on this question, they said the question of Palestinian statehood cannot be resolved prior to a negotiated peace settlement 
and therefore Australia's position is clear. Australia does not recognise the, quote, state of Palestine. Mm. As such, Australia does not recognise the right of the Palestinians to accede to the Rome Statute. Mm. So how does that fit? Like, can, can each state just have their position as one divergent from the internationally sort of proclaimed position within the United Nations? Yeah, so the sort of background to this is in international law, there's quite a lot of law around what is a state and what are the criteria for statehood. And the key ones um, are population, uh, having territory and having a government that has capacity to enter into legal relations. Um, There's sort of additional criteria as well that are recognised in terms of recognition by the international community and so forth. Mm. So the fundamental argument, I think, that Australia and other states were putting against Palestine was that when the Rome Statute, and there's a number um, um, of parts of it where there's references to a state party or the territory of a state party, uh, that when the statute refers to that, that unless you are actually a state, then you can't be what is being referred to in that article. So, for example, there can't be jurisdiction under Article 12 over things that have occurred in Palestine if Palestine is not a state because Palestine's not capable of being or meeting that term of something happening in the territory of a state party. But the way that the majority resolved that was... It's sort of complicated, but they essentially said a few things. Firstly, they deferred to the General um, Assembly Resolution that had recognised uh, Palestinian as a state. They said that... There'd but Australia been... doesn't accept that general... That's right. That, that resolution. Yeah, that's right. Mm. They then, though, looked at uh, the mechanism by which uh, the state of Palestine had acceded to the Rome Statute, which provides for you to, uh, to deposit the instrument um, of accession with the Secretary-General and so forth, and then noted that no state had challenged that ascension. And that's sort of at paragraphs 101 and 102 of the decision. And there's a mechanism in there for you to take a challenge to a session to um, an entity that's called the Assembly um, of States, and no one had done that. So they basically said, look, we're going to construe the references throughout the Rome Statute to a state or the territory of a state to be a state in the terms of um, ascension to the statute. And we're not going to look more broadly um, at the validity of that ascension or whether they are generally accepted as a matter of international law to be a state. It's enough for our purposes that for the purpose of the statute they're a state, Mm -hmm. Um, which sort of seems quite reasonable to me. Um, And in terms of their, their not having been a challenge to their ascension, I suppose... It kind of highlights that if you're Israel, for example, and you don't accede to the statute, so you're not sort of represented in the organs of the institution, well, don't go and complain uh, when the institution recognises your opponent of uh, the state of Palestine because if you're not there, you don't have the opportunity to sort of challenge it and so forth. Um, so on that first question, which was, are these references to a state in the statute capable of being met by Palestine? They said yes, because Palestine's acceded to the statute. The General Assembly says they're a state, and we, we essentially don't have jurisdiction to question their ascension. That was how they disposed 
um, of the first question. And Israel wasn't heard on the question because... Yeah, it's interesting. So Israel had drafted, the State of Israel had drafted a couple um, of legal memorandums which got attached to submissions effectively. Okay. So Israel seems to have sort of been heard. By other sort of legal groups or other amicus curiae briefs. Yeah, and that's an interesting part of the decision because... There's a heap of victim groups who are represented, who all made submissions. There's heaps of amicus curiae, including Australia. So there was ample opportunities for Israel, including through victims groups that are Israeli. You know, Israeli victims of Palestinian terror, I think, is one. Uh, they were effectively able to be heard. I mean, they could have been heard, but that would... Give involve, some legitimacy to well, the forum. You would cede to the jurisdiction. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Which they don't. Yeah. So the second question that the pre-trial chamber posed to itself was in the context um, of complementary jurisdiction, which is basically the idea that the ICC doesn't sort of exercise pure original jurisdiction. It only exercises a jurisdiction that it's given by state parties and then only to the extent that the state parties aren't capable um, of dealing with the problem. They posed a question about whether... The submissions were correct that there was an insurmountable obstacle to jurisdiction, being that Palestine didn't have jurisdiction over its territory, in particular over Area C and East Jerusalem. And what that's a reference to is under the Oslo Accords, struck what back in '93, I think it was, um, the West Bank, which is obviously the predominant part um, of the territory, was split into. Three zones, basically. Mm. Zone I remember this A, when we were travelling there. C. Yeah. And how yeah. it affected our ability Absolutely. to get around. Yeah. Yeah. So the densely populated sort of Palestinian areas, I think, is zone A. Mm, so that's like Ramallah yeah. and... Yeah, Hebron, Jenin, uh, Nablus. So they're under the control of the Palestinian Authority. They sort of have a court system, civilian court system. They exercise sort of control through police and so forth. Um. So they would meet the kind of definition of being under the effective control, so to speak, of the Palestinian state. Mm. But Area C, for example, is the area, uh, the large parts of the West Bank that are purely under Israeli control. Mm. So this sort of argument is along the lines of you can't give your jurisdiction to the ICC if you have never had... In respect of the settlements. Yeah, in respect of the settlements in areas where you Mm. don't exercise control at all, so you don't have jurisdiction. Mm. And what the court said about that was to basically say, well, the international boundaries of the state of Palestine that is a party to this treaty um, are well recognised. It's East Jerusalem, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Uh, The Palestinian people have a right to (coughs) self-determination. They are currently under occupation. Their human rights are being breached and so forth. So we're not going to take a sort of jurisdictional interpretation that sort of gives way (coughs) to occupation and breaches of human rights. Mm. We're going to draw upon the principles of self-determination and human rights and say that those principles mean that this is no obstacle to our jurisdiction. Because Because the only thing getting in the way of the Palestinians having that effective control is acts that are probably illegal under international law. Aren't the... Settlements, so Area C, potentially facts, you know, the fact of the settlements, isn't that something that could give rise to a prosecution in the ICC? Yeah, I mean, there's crimes of transfer of civilian populations, crimes of aggression. I'm not sure whether those would be considered to be ongoing crimes and therefore ones that post-date 2014 or not because Mm -hmm. the referral is limited to things after 2014. And I think the focus of it is... 
particularly conflicts around Gaza, so military operations that have happened in respect of Gaza, Mm -hmm. and then military operations against Israeli civilian targets where Hamas has fired fired rockets into civilian areas and so forth. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, potentially it could engage those um, actions that are ongoing. Could be crimes against humanity maybe. Yeah, potentially, yeah. So that's how they basically answered the second question. So can I ask you this? Steve, is there an appeal process? I don't know about that, actually. It's an interesting question. There's an appeal against the number of pages. <laughs> sure. <laughs> used. Sure. Um, interlocutory appeals on... I reckon there's the procedure, probably a full chamber, I'd say, yeah. Yeah, it's because I'm question. just wondering... We should do a postscript on that. ...who might be interested to appeal because anyone who put in an amicus brief obviously doesn't have standing to... This sort of comes up in the decision, actually, because one of the arguments put against the application was to say that a ruling on jurisdiction shouldn't preempt issues that the accused might raise. And they dispensed with that saying, look, we will hear the accused if the accused has a jurisdictional mm-hmm. argument, but we, in the interests of sort of efficacy and a whole lot of other factors, we need to rule on this now because it's a very long protracted process. Yeah, because this basically facilitates any... An ongoing an investigation, investigation and potential court proceedings. And there's That's no right. actual charge yeah. in respect of any... That's right. I mean, there's been a preliminary yet. assessment um, of the situation and they obviously think that there's issues there, otherwise they wouldn't have proceeded to this. Mm. So it looks like there's a good prospect of some sort of proceeding, but... Mm. Yeah, so that but question presumably can still be raised. victims wouldn't be interested in appealing a finding that there's jurisdiction, right? No, and they might be the because there's victims groups. I think there's victims groups who are pushing the Israeli government position. Okay. Yeah. So they're just basically agents of the I, Israeli I'm not 100% sure about that, but I suspect so just based on some of the submissions mm. because there was vigorous opposition to each of the prosecutor's contentions. By some victims' yeah, representatives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, certainly at least in part. Yeah, the, the, the Prime Minister of Israel said in response, sort of pushing back against it, that this was effectively a persecution of the state of Israel. And then went on to say, or to note, that you know Israel is a state, quote, a state with a firm democratic regime which sanctifies the rule of law and is not a member of the court. And it just strikes me as odd that a democratic polity could be held to account by a non-democratic, non-democratically appointed pol- agency, that being the court. Like I just, you know, if you sign... I mean, international law is power-based and there's Mm. there's little one can do about that for better or for worse. But principally, I mean... I mean, there's been arguments put about this in terms of complementarity, saying, for example, look, Israel has the rule of law, Israel will always punish people accused of committing, you know, war crimes or whatever. But is that actually so as a matter of fact? I mean, you know, the ICC investigators might decide that Israel is not enforcing those norms adequately. So that's sort of one aspect of that. Um, I suppose another is it might seem anomalous on some levels, but is that not just a consequence of occupation? If you occupy this other entity and that other entity is ultimately recognised by the international community, is it so anomalous that you, that you end up prosecuted not for actions in your territory but for your actions in their territory? Yeah, and your kind of democratic system shouldn't really matter in that sense, should it? I mean, it just strikes me as political. 
I'm not saying that I'm not taking a side, as it were, on that issue. It's just that is a base level political issue to my mind. It's not some. It's not an exercise of judicial power. The punishment of individuals may be, but the decision that an occupying power, if you want to put it that way, is occupying in such a way that it harms. It's once the territory is under the control of a polity, it's under the control of the polity. And if people outside that want to change that, that's a political issue and not a judicial one, to my mind. I mean, this issue is so complicated in the sense that, you know, they had the Oslo Accords, so they recognised this Palestinian entity and it's got population, it's got territory, it's recognised by the UN as a state. So it's not as simple as a sort of occupation in one sense. And, you know, I heard all this commentary when I was looking at this about, you know, people in advance of the decision saying the ICC is not going to find jurisdiction because they won't dare to kind of wade into the world's most contentious political issue. Mm. And, you know, I sort of heard a couple of interviews with quite sort of well-meaning academics saying that the ICC shouldn't do it because it would undermine their credibility and so forth. But, I mean, what about the Palestinians? Like, they're seeking justice on their view for crimes against them in the context of, I think anyone would have to admit that they were dispossessed and they're sort of great victims of history just because it's political. Is that an argument against the ICC having jurisdiction? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where, it, to my mind, courts have to be... Vi- courts at all levels, but particularly the international level where their legitimacy is always in question, need to be so careful. And, I mean, one of the things that was put by the Israeli Prime Minister is, well, you guys ignore war crimes going on all around the world. And, in truth, they do, and they do, because they're not funded properly. You you, You can't go after all war criminals. And so you just have to make sure... I think that you draw a f- as firm a line, it's hard, but you draw as firm a line as you can to move away from the politics. So, um, but frankly, I didn't make it through the decision because the pages. Yeah. I don't we know requested extension on pages, please. I don't know if it's political. I mean, you really, that requires a real analysis, I guess, of comparative situations, but also what is motivating the prosecutor. I mean,. Because to say that it's political and therefore it shouldn't happen, that can just be to defer to existing power relations, right? Mm. Like it's political and it's controversial because Israel and America and the Western world and various allies are going to heap scorn upon it. But that's a reflection as well of existing power relations, which, you know, that's international law as well. Well, I suppose what I'm saying is that if you're the international court, you operate within the existing power relations in order to ensure your legitimacy. Mm. The minute you start trying to push powers around is the minute that they start undermining you yeah. even more. Yeah? That's that, true. That's I mean, danger. it's worth noting in this sense that, I can't remember the exact number, but in that General Assembly resolution, it was a very large majority of UN member states who recognised Palestinian as a state, recognised Palestine as a state. Yeah. So there's a majority of states who recognise Palestine, but... There's not a majority of the world's most powerful states. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's yeah. Anyway, there's a dissenting opinion by the Hungarian judge 
which I didn't get through all of it, but I heard some analysis of it, and apparently, well, it's certainly very long and much more detailed and pretty scathing, I think, um, of the majority view. But not on the uh, pages. Hello and welcome back. Uh, this is Jim Minns, the host. Um, remember that name? Just kidding. That was, sorry. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> fun things. I like to drag this. Do you want to start out. with your fun thing this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Let's start. Um, oh, okay. I usually I usually let the the fun things roll so I can think of something in time. I am in the process of doing um, real property and constitutional law at the moment in case my little interjections didn't come through in that specifically topic. Section is fun things. So the fun thing is in three and a half weeks the exam will be over. (laughs) That's going to be my fun thing. Mr. Stephen Lawrence, Deputy Mayor, Mr. himself. Um, I've been pretty busy. I haven't been doing heaps of social stuff. But I did listen yesterday Uh, as I was driving from Canberra to Sydney to the whole of Donald Trump's lawyer's opening address in his impeachment trial. Lord. It is <laughs> hilarious. He's been really criticised as sort of incompetent and hopeless, but he's a former district attorney, and yeah. I reckon he would have been a brilliant jury lawyer. <laughs> he just, he uh, just got up and talked. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it kind of really varied in its quality, but it was all really it was sort great. of, we might sort play of down, an hometown kind of... The audience for the level communicating, yeah, yeah, really quite fun. And he, he and came fun. after the presentation of the videos that were very edited, quite masterfully. Mm. Yeah. And he complimented them. He <laughs> says, <laughs> um, Pretty good, that's a pretty good argument. That video was extremely <laughs> impressive. And look, I'll be honest with you, we've changed our whole case because of it. <laughs> <laughs> he also didn't, didn't buy into the big lie at all. He said, Joe Biden won the election. Fair and square. Oh, shit. And supposedly Trump was at home throwing things at the television. <laughs> we don't know, though, because he couldn't tweet about it. Yeah, we don't know. Felicity Grace. Hang on. Can I just ask one thing? You went mm. to Canberra yesterday, High Court. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Today. Today? Yesterday. yesterday. No, yesterday. Yeah. yeah, I was in the High Court. Not doing, a fun thing. Doing a interesting immigration matter led by Brett Walker. Hey. So I got there. I got to sit there and marvel at his articulateness. Does did Does Brett go? Well, yeah, <laughs> he'd never used that word. Particularity. <laughs> He's a listener, right? Yeah, Brett listens. Brett listens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mr. Really Walker. Well. Excuse me, Mr. Yeah, Walker. Mr. Walker. Uh, That's good. Anyway, we're in front of a bench of five, including the new judge, Justice Stewart. Um, oh yeah, case about interpreter error in asylum seeker interviews. I don't know if cool. we win. Oh. Fingers crossed. Shout out to Richard Beasley, SC. Yeah. I always like that guy. Mm. And he follows us and is a big fan yeah, of us. Yeah, retweets our retweets episodes, our stuff. It? I read his book when I was a kid. I so it. did I. Hell has a harp of you. Yeah, it was a cracker. Oh, and was he's that his book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah, his book. Yeah. Yeah. What a great book. Yeah, he's yeah, my yeah. sister's old next-door neighbour. Oh, in really? Ramwick. Yeah. yeah, I reckon he's killer. I like that guy. Mm. Mate, come on the show. Reach out, Richard. Yeah. Jump on. <laughs> Mate, we'll plug, I mean, uh, we'll just to talk about that book. Yeah, do it. I or, think he, yeah. he, still, he still pumps them out. Yeah, he but does. Still the, I mean, my wife's living that right now. That's that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Mate, get her on too. Get Jump on, on. Parla. You still there, Claire? Jump on. No, that's not Parla. That's, what is it? That's the one that got banned. <laughs> I'm in Clubhouse. Clubhouse. Whatever the f*** we're on. Parla. Jump on Parla. Where have you been on the internet, Oops. Jim? <laughs> okay, Felicity Graham... 
What's your fun thing? Okay, I've got a fun thing and then I've also got something which could be for a new segment of the wigs, like a sort of fan mail Sick. segment. Okay, I love it. I might do that first. So, Oh, no, I'll do my fun thing first. My fun thing is... It's not feedback about my swearing, is it? No, it's not. Okay, good. It's not. My fun thing is this. I am going with my mum and my sisters down to the Southern Highlands this weekend. It's sort of our present Christmas present to our mum. Cool. And we're going to go to a jewellery making course. Cool. kind of go out to a nice restaurant and just spend some mother-daughter time. That is fun. That's a fun thing. Yeah. That is Art galleries and stuff like that. Well done. Jeez, I'm jealous. I mean, like, I wouldn't want to tag along anyway because it's your family. But I think that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's going to be superb. The other thing is this. Yeah. I was in Newcastle recently uh, running a coronial inquest and I bumped into a fan of the wigs. Hey. Oh, wow. Like like unsolicited, someone came up to unsolicited. you. Unsolicited. Why does this never happen to me? I was there and this fan realised like sort who of quite quickly to. who I was after I'd been introduced. Yes. And she said... Oh my god! <laughs> I am in the presence of legal royalty. <laughs> You're a rock star. Where's my sharpie? Can I sign your tits? No. What? <laughs> no. She did. She did. She's What's like, a sharpie? You know, like a black texture. Oh, okay. She did. She did. As in, she asked and then did it. She asked. <laughs> right. And she said, oh, look, I don't have a selfie. I, um, what's it called? A sharpie. <laughs> You're like, you've gone straight to the photo. Yeah. <laughs> didn't have the proof. <laughs> um, she said, oh, I wish I had my sharpie, but I don't have it. You know, yeah. I would sign your tits because that's what it's you probably do not with rock happen. stars. Yeah, yeah. Um, How funny. Has this ever happened to you, Manny? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> look, I didn't tell her that as, you know, a good criminal lawyer, of course I had a Sharpie because all criminal lawyers carry around the black texture of truth in their She's like a case. witch groupie, isn't she? But, yeah, so my, my, my tits went unsigned. So um, she wanted to wh- sign why, you. Why did you deny it? No, no, no. no <laughs> I would like to apologise on behalf of the weeks. No, hang on. Maybe she wanted to me Manny. to sign of her Of course. <laughs> you don't want Sorry. her autograph. She wants yours. She wanted me to sign her. Yes, of course. I would like to apologise to this listener. Yes. Hey, reach out. We could have you, this random listener, Richard Beasley, and Claire on. She and doesn't a exist. Manufacturer. And, a sh- and just some. I don't reckon crazy. she exists, this thing. It's just a made up. This is a crazy <laughs> story. Who would make this up? It's this is the craziest up. story I've ever heard in my life. Fake fun thing. <laughs> That's no, a that was fake fun <laughs> So I'm going no to Newcastle way. with a bag full of Sharpies this weekend. Hey, there we go. I'll be outside Corin 3 at 10 15. Well, that, how do you follow that up? Manny. What? <laughs> That's your fun thing too. You're gonna I mean, yeah, I don't have a fun thing. Oh, dude. I no, mean, look, I'm having, I'm actually, you know what? I'm having, I'm having a wonderful weekend off. Sick. Um, it just so happens to be Valentine's Day on oh, Sunday. Of course it so is. And Manny's had a haircut too. We should mention that. Oh, I hate my hair. It's not a fun thing. Though. No, it looks good. It does. Yeah. And you've got to push through because you want to grow those sides. Yeah, you've got to push through. It's like Samson, you know? My hair's oh, been yeah, cut and I have gone. no, I've no strength. Gone. Yeah. Mate, you're on fire tonight. Yes. Hats off to you. It was good. It's the uh, microphone. Oh, <laughs> hey, do we rate this setup? I'd, I'd like a microphone stand. Though, no, mate, it makes you lazy. You were sharp tonight. You were sharp. <laughs> you feel I'm like you. You feel like you're on a game show with the microphone. I like it, mm. and I think the audience. Or late night radio. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks a lot. Be better. Yeah, it yeah. will be. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, you've been great. 
and we'll see you next month. It's the wigs. You know you love us. We're the best. We'll see you next month. God bless. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.